This is Anne Fremantle introducing another of WNYC's PEN, P-E-N, portraits. What is PEN, P-E-N? PEN is an independent world association of writers. The initials P-E-N stand for poets, playwrights, essayists, editors, novelists, and by implication of the initials for all writers. PEN was founded in 1921 in London by John Galsworthy, who became its first international president. American PEN was founded in 1922 with Booth Tarkington as its first president. The present president of International PEN is the British novelist V.S. Pritchett. The present president of American PEN is the distinguished American novelist Jerzy Kosinski. PEN has over 80 centers in 60 countries of Europe, North and South America, Asia and Africa. World membership is around 10,000. American PEN which has its headquarters in New York, but draws its members from all over the United States, has 1,500 members. Membership is by invitation of the Membership Committee, extended to published writers of demonstrative accomplishment. What is PEN for? What does PEN do? PEN exists to promote worldwide friendship and intellectual cooperation among men and women of letters. PEN is a purely literary association, working in a practical way on all matters of concern, to writers generally, better protection of literary copyrights, better deals for translators, workshops for beginning writers in underprivileged areas, lectures and receptions for foreign authors coming here. PEN has no politics, but it is against the imprisonment of writers for political reasons, and PEN members in the PEN Charter pledge themselves, quote, to oppose any form of suppression of freedom or expression in the country and the community to which they belong. PEN is therefore against all censorship of the written word. Today, speaking together under the auspices of PEN, PEN, over WNYC, are two very, one very distinguished writer and one new young writer. Dr. Paul Horgan has written 38 books, I believe. Uh, he's written novels, uh, other fiction, history, and essays. He has been for 13 years professor at Wesleyan University. His latest book, The Lame of Santa Fe, published by Farah Strauss and Giroux, is about Bishop Lame, the bishop who was in uh, Death Comes to the Archbishop. And uh, th this book is his latest book. His first book was The Fault of Angels, other of his novels, A Distant Trumpet, White Water, other fiction, the beautiful story of a child growing up, Things as They Are. Among his historical books was Great River, the Rio Grande, for which he won a Pulitzer Prize, Songs After Lincoln, and uh, also, uh, very lately, Encounters with Stravinsky. His newest book, Lamy of Santa Fe, is published by Farah Strauss and Giroux. Speaking with him, is Robin Prising, who is a young writer born in Vancouver, Canada, and was taken to Manila as a small baby. He was in Manila all through the war, and his first book, published by Horton Mifflin Company, is called Manila Goodbye, and it is an account of his life in Manila, first as a privileged child and then as a suffering prisoner. Robin Prising and Dr. Paul Horgan are going to talk about diverse tongues that make up one people. Because for both in the Southwest, 
where there have been several languages, Spanish and French and English, and in Manila, where Mr. Prising will tell us about the languages, there are diverse tongues which make up one people. Now, Dr. Hogan, will you tell us a little bit about the uh, Southwest, which you know so well, and how you came to write about Bishop Lamy? And yes, it's a great pleasure to speak of this, because it began, as I think a great many books do in childhood, whatever the subject. This subject transcends, of course, my own childhood, but I first heard of this interesting man as a child in New Mexico, and there I had encountered the, this, this triadic culture, the three, the three laminations of the Indian and the Hispanic and the Anglo-American. In the 19th century, uh, Bishop Lamy was sent out to Santa Fe in 1851 uh, to reestablish the, the uh, Catholic Church in that area since, with the end of the Mexican War in 1848, there could no longer be jurisdiction by Mexican bishops proper. Or in, Spanish language. Or suppose in New Mexico. Well, Spanish language is ineradicable for many more decades. But uh, what he brought was the culture of Europe direct instead of filtered through the Spanish and the Mexican. And from France. Founders. He was and a Frenchman. He was a Frenchman. He was born at Clermont, near Clermont-Ferrand. And um, I got interested in him as a youth, as a child, because I heard my parents' friends talking about him as if he was still living. He died in 1888. Then in Santa Fe, in the, in the capital of the state of New Mexico, his presence was still almost palpable. It was marvelous to, to see the results of his life there, in, in architecturally and socially and culturally and all these things. So that he seemed to me a real presence. And as I uh, grew on and became a writer and uh, published other books about the Southwest, he always had some shadowy presence in them. And in fact, I deleted from Great River a book about the whole area uh, rather a full passage about him because I then knew I was going to write a book about him and, uh, and preserved this for this later effort which is now before you. <laughs> well, that's very interesting. Um, Mr. Prising, will you tell us how you came to write uh, this very moving and, and uh, in some places almost heartbreaking account of what you endured as a small boy? Well, I, I think I start the book as I'm leaving Manila after the city has been completely destroyed and actually I feel that I knew that one day I would write about it and tell about it at that uh, point. Manila had been a beautiful city with a Spanish influence from the uh, Spanish settlement, it was built on uh, the remains of an old Mohammedan settlement mm. and uh, the Spanish had uh, covered over all traces of uh, former right. civilizations and so forth and uh, the Filipino past. And then it was entirely destroyed uh, by war. And today, of course, uh, the destruction by war has meant that they've found uh, the relics of the uh, Mohammedan civilization and uh, so forth. And what about the languages? What, uh, what were the languages when you were there? Well. Uh, after the uh, Americans took the Philippines over, uh, after the Spanish-American War, it became English, and the Filipinos, uh, uh, English is a diplomatic language and general language, uh, because uh, the Filipinos disliked the Spaniards, and uh, they preferred to use uh, English, and they spoke in various dialects, uh, Tagalog, which is now Filipino. Can you uh, repeat that word? Tagalog. Some people say Tagalog for it, but it's not Tagalog, <laughs> it's uh, Tagalog. And that's called uh, Filipino today, uh, and that's what uh, the national language is now. But uh, business and uh, the Senate and so forth functions in English, 
which is from the American days. Is there any Spanish still? There is uh, Spanish, and many Filipino names uh, are uh, Spanish names. Um, Dr. Horgan, um, do you find in now going to the uh, New Mexico, as I know you do it almost every year, um, do you find that, sp uh, that Spanish is still spoken there? It is still spoken, uh, chiefly in the northern part of the state, in what is called the Rio Arriba, up in the, up in the, in the old Mexican counties, where the, the hotbed of uh, local politics among the Latinos, among the Spanish Americans, uh, still exists. So there is a good deal of, of uh, Spanish residual in that part of the state. However, it is only fair to say that, uh, that when one addresses uh, a so-called native in, in, in Spanish, in his own language, it is somewhat resented, and he mm. replies to you in English. Oh, that's very yeah. Rather as if you're, do you find this in the Philippines also? Yes. It yes. sounds to them a little patronizing, apparently. Yes, yes. Uh, and they wish to identify themselves with the, with the uh, not superior, but the, the dominant. The dominant uh, uh, culture. Yes. It's a very odd pride, and one respects it, but at the same time, it's a little disappointing if you're showing off a little Spanish <laughs> to, to, <laughs> to be put back into English by them. Well, if somebody did it to me, it would be because my Spanish wasn't good enough, I'm well, afraid. Well, no, mine, but uh, <laughs> in any case, occasional words, you know. But now, you do think that the culturally, I mean, when Bishop Lamy came there, there was a Spanish, uh, definitely a Spanish culture. Almost altogether, you see, the, the, it, until the American invasion of 1846 in the, in the war, the war with Mexico, the only intruders were, were few. They were traders, they were uh, trappers, uh, adventurous people, but uh, on a very small scale. Then came the army, the American army of occupation, and New Mexico was taken peacefully without battle because there was no, nothing with which to resist them. And General Carney turned out to be a merciful and intelligent, civilized commander. So he began the meld of the two cultures as well as he could at that time. But uh, Spanish was still highly prevalent. And uh, then English ways took over as commerce became established. It seems to be the, uh, the great implantation which, of the language, which then brings its culture with it. I suppose you found this true to be in the Philippines. Yes. Uh, uh, well, of course, uh, uh, there too, the Americans uh, uh, took over in what was it, 1898, I think mm. it was. So called Spanish American War? Yes, uh, Spanish American War. And uh, the uh, Filipinos uh, resented the American mm. uh, occupation at first, and there was the long uh, Filipino American War. Yeah. And then after that, uh, the English language uh, became uh, spoken more and more because the Filipinos had resented the Americans less than they did mm. the Spaniards, who were far more ruthless and cruel, and yeah. Americans were bringing in uh, medicine and yeah. uh, teachers and various things, yeah. which eventually uh, placated the Filipinos after the war and the killing was over. Was there a sense ever of the, of the, the so-called natives, let's use it bluntly, this is a perfectly good word, those who were born there? Yes. Um, uh, any sense that they were always regarded, until perhaps quite lately, as second-class citizens? This has been the case in New Mexico. Yes, well, uh, this couldn't really be the case uh, in Manila, even though pe certain people would pretend it, because there were only about 4,000 uh, Europeans in Manila. Ah, I see. You see. Yes. And uh, though in the uh, particular enclaves that we lived in, of course, we talked of them as natives, and... Uh, there was this sort of feeling, uh, but I think that uh, you couldn't really get away with it because mm. uh, it was their country and uh, you knew that it was their country. But that's the difference. And you see, the diverse languages of New Mexico 
and be becoming one people only after there was a great dominance, tremendous dominance of the, of the Anglo-American culture which did come in and bring its own language and its own commercial culture chiefly, the railroads for example, and then trading. And then finally the third phase of prosperity came through the Anglo-American tubercular invasion. The health seekers the health who came. They brought tuberculosis. Uh, yeah, no, they, they brought to be cured of it in, in New oh, Mexico. Yes. It became a great, a great uh, sanitarium for, for uh, consumptive patients. But at that time, you see, they were in numerically uh, dominating the, the native population. So in this case, the one people had to come uh, again with a resurgence from below. And now the Chicano movement is quite strong in New Mexico. Yes. Quite I was strong. going to ask about that. It, it is quite strong. Quite strong. The young with, people, with the language. Uh, uh, they're the proud of the language, but they, 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 they choose, I think, to animate themselves in English. Their ideas come across in English, but their, their attitudes are very much separatist. So that when we speak of one people coming through diverse languages, there now seems to be a reversing process going on, which uh, is quite interesting as, as a, a localistic pride begins to reassert itself and people will not accept the concept of being second-class citizens anymore in their own cultural terms. But I think this will happen in the Philippines too because the new language which is made up out of the Tagalog dialect and uh, several others and bits of English and so forth I think uh, will probably one day be the uh, uh, real Philippine tongue. It may be uh, used at, in the Senate and uh, diplomatically and so forth uh, yeah. too. I have a feeling that it will uh, win out. Yes. There's a movement in Ireland, for instance, going back to the Gaelic. Is that what you would call it? What was that? Uh, um, yes, uh, Earth. Uh, they, the they, yes. they made it obligatory at one point. Yes. And then well, now, will that happen? Yes, well, you see, that's funny, because uh, how many people really do it? Uh, do speak uh, Gaelic? Do they, do they speak Gaelic? In the no, Irish and thing? they more or less had to give it up, because, um, you know, they, uh, the, the alphabet was different, too, slightly. Not, yes. not as different so, as Sanskrit or something, but it was different. And so, after a bit, they just had to use English... So they keep some of those names. Dunleary, for instance, mm. um, is, a, is a Gaelic name for what was the port of Ireland, of Dublin? Anyway, it was an ordinary English mm. name. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Now it's uh, spelt uh, yeah. D-U-N-L-A-O-G-H-A-I-R-E. Yeah. Yes, and pronounced quite, quite different. <laughs> quite yes. I think, too, that, that a very important point is going to be that in the end, the acculturation is going to come with, in terms of the more powerful of the cultures that are combined. No matter how strongly the Chicanos reach for their identity and want to be a separatist unit, which is happening all over the country in various kinds of uh, localities and, and proud local cultures, still, unfortunately, it's, it's the commercial and legislative power that is going to dominate. And um, I think this will mean that, that in the end the language will remain USA, maybe with some infusions from the Spanish. There are plenty of English words that come from from the Spanish related cowboy life, for instance. But uh, I would think that, that diverse languages, diverse peoples, isn't going to be a thing that's going to work. It's no, it, it is. I mean, the idea is that it's diverse tongues and, and producing one people. And as both of you are writers, I'd like to ask you, do you think that the dominance of one language, uh, for instance, English, uh, which is now dominant not only in the Western world, but uh, very much, for instance, in India, where yes. people who speak Marathi or Hindi uh, can't speak each other's language and speak to each other in, in English. Do you think that's a good thing, that, that we end up in the end with, say, four or five... UN has five official languages, Chinese, Russian, English, French, and Spanish. 
Um, do you think that that's a good thing that we in the end will have, say, four or five major languages? I'll defer to you. Right. I have a notion, but you speak yours first. I feel that in one sense it is, and in, of course, another sense it isn't, because there's a lot lost uh, in the uh, beauty of different tongues and so forth. I know that, uh, for example, people won't be speaking French as, uh, you know, they did formerly as a diplomatic language, and I think this is a great pity. But in another sense, it will help people to communicate with each other. And uh, if they know uh, Russian, Chinese, uh, English, th that will be the uh, world of the future. At least that's what people will study. But I don't know whether it will be fortunate to lose the other tongues. Your, your point pretty well determines what I was going to say, too, that, that it's inevitable, since there is a move toward a world community. There's no question that there are strong moves now that will take generations to, to be realized. But still, there has to be a common communication. Now, it's going to be at the, at the cost, of course, of much beautiful local expression and local culture. Uh, it would be splendid if there were ardent people who, who work to preserve those things locally, but they will not be of use internationally. And it is that international use that I think is going to require a fairly limited number of common languages, or we're not going to make this, this uh, planet work as a unit, which it's obviously struggling to do in various obscure ways, but I think it's on its way. Yes, well, of course, even uh, we see even in uh, the English language how it shifts and is shifting now from British English uh, more to American English, and it uh, shifts back and forth mm -hmm. and things are sent. And I think that's what's going to happen. I think that's splendid, though. It gets richer all the time. Yes, yes. I mean, American is a much richer language than English. Yes. And if you read uh, the English newspapers or the American newspapers, the difference is striking, how, many, how much richer the, the actual language is here. And, it's um, funny, that sounds richer to, in, in, when you do it to the English, but it sounds abominable when you do it to the French. The, for the Americanization of, of French. Yes, franglais. Franglais is a, franglais, is a calamity. Yes, Coca-Cola colorisation. Yes, yes. <laughs> a real calamity culturally, but it, the invasion is irresistible. And I think English is, has this great impetus and, and has the lead now, I should think. Well, apparently the, the, the richest languages uh, culturally as well as... Um, as well as linguistically, are at the moment, I think, English, Russian, Spanish, aren't mm. they? For, 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 I mean, for the number of books for the quantity. Written, yes, well, the quantity and the number of books, books and the yes. authors and, mm. the, and the diffusion of these authors. Mm. Uh, I believe one could say that. Mm. But um, I suppose it must be very difficult. Could, could have somebody writing in Tagalog, is it Yes, Tagalog, Tagalog, Tagalog. Tagalog. Could someone writing in Tagalog have a world reputation, do you think? No, I don't think so. And, for example, the major Filipino uh, poet of uh, today is uh, Jose Garcia Villa, and uh, he writes in English uh, and uh, always has written in English, and almost all the work that uh, is done in the Philippines comes from uh, English, is done in English. Now, are there any uh, writers in... in um um, New Mexico or Arizona, any of these places who use Spanish as a, not as a writing language? Not significantly. Not significantly, no. no. It's a, it was a great place for immigrant writers of, in English from the East and from other places, but uh, no, no significant Spanish language literature comes out of there, as it does from, of course, Mexico and South America. And, of course, uh, foreign writers writing in English have always been absolutely magnificent. I mean, from Joseph Conrad on, yeah. uh, we've yeah. had some of our greatest writers, non-English. Non yes. They have to work harder. I, I think, think that's be, partly... Well, I think uh, Jose Villa, for example, uh, spoke uh, English always. I think he spoke uh, two languages. He grew, uh, grew up uh, bilingual. 
enviable, I think, to grow up bilingual. I do too. Yes, that's I a marvelous I resource. I wonder, I was going to ask you if you did no, as a youngster in Manila. No, 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 I did not. You always had English. I had bits and pieces of Spanish, but mm. that was all. Mm. I never uh, really spoke another no. language. And yet, wonderfully enough, I revert for a moment to your book, which I admire very much indeed. I think the 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 sense of the native background and the uh, the Tagalog culture, if there is a comparable one comes through somehow in your book uh, without your having used it consciously. It's yes, I couldn't, I couldn't use it consciously no. because it was a mystery at a distance, yes. but it sort of but it comes up from came underneath. Up between the lines, which is, of course, the best way for an atmosphere to occur. And um, the, the, one, the, the other great quality of your book, I think, is, is the affirmation with which all the agony that it, it uh, so touchingly describes is fi finally accepted and transcended. That's a marvelous quality. Well, I believe one ought to affirm. I think it's the only thing one can yes. do. Well, here it's very clear in your book. And, <laughs> or and keep quiet. <laughs> well, yes. there are many who think that the only thing to do is destroy. No, no, and because other people have don't. to live. Obviously, but you, you, you uh, so wonderfully give this point of view, I think. And, and, and I goodbye, think, Manila. I think, Dr. Horgan, one of the wonderful things in... in uh, your portrait of, of Bishop Lamy is how a Frenchman, and a Frenchman from a particular part of France, a very regional Frenchman, could come to be so universal. I mean, that is extraordinary that a man of, of very deep and sincere roots could find himself in, in these the distances. What are the, some, I do give some of the actual distances he traversed. I mean, it was 1,500 miles of diocese he had, something well, like that. Well, infinitely. His, his whole domain was larger than France where he was born. Mm. The diocese was bigger than France, but to, to, to see the bishop who had previously had control of the area of New Mexico, he had to travel 1,500 miles to the next cathedral and regain his own authority for his own see. His, he, he brought the French culture with him, quite naturally. Colonists always do this. They transfer what they know best and have good Rome to love and they grew up in. But he was also marvelously sympathetic to the Mexican people loved them dearly, uh, felt, their, felt their deprivation and their plight greatly, and worked very hard indeed for their relief in every way. He was the first man to give education to them and hospitals to them and orphaned asylums to them and any social cohesion and, and respect. And so they came finally, to, after resenting him at first as a foreigner, they came deeply to love him. And he was the first citizen of Santa Fe for several decades, finally earned this, this, this grand Great position. And his life was immensely adventurous as well as, uh, yes, as modestly there. constructive, you see. I mean, that shipwreck. And, Was that amazing? The Gulf of Mexico. Yes, yeah. do, do say a little about that. It but he, he, he left for New Mexico by a curious route. Mostly people crossed the plains from St. Louis to Kansas City, Westport Atlantic, so on, for Santa Fe, over the Santa Fe Trail. But he decided to go by way of New Orleans from Cincinnati. He was stationed in Ohio first. Cincinnati to New Orleans, then the Gulf of Mexico to... to, to, uh, to um, Texas. To, to the, coast, the Gulf Coast of Texas, yeah. uh, and there he was shipwrecked at the mouth of a bay, which was going to take him on to San Antonio. And lost everything. He lost everything. There, well, there's some of his library was preserved, and I have handled some of the books which are still water-stained mm. that mm. went with him finally to Santa Fe. Then it was an immense trip over the plains from, uh, from, Sa from San Antonio to Santa Fe by way of El Paso. And what year was El Paso, this? 1851. And he finally landed there in August of 1851 and was immensely welcomed and at once ran into scandals with the local authority and the clergy who resisted him. And then from then on, his life was a battle administratively to, to, to assert his, his proper uh, govern, governance over the place. 
doing this, he had to learn this enormous landscape and its many moods and and distances. And well learned two two new languages after all. He had to learn English. Well, he'd known English then. before in Ohio. He served ten years in Ohio first. Oh before he came west. Yes, but I mean, he, as a, uh, when he went, left France, he had to learn yeah, when English he left France, he had to, yeah, learned and English, then, uh, yes, and then, and then Spanish. Spanish, that's yeah. right. He left France and went to Ohio. Went to Ohio, he was his missioner in, in 1839, and 1851 was transferred, was made a bishop to his amazement, and sent out to Santa Fe. And then he became, he, it's interesting, his three, his three first, he was born Jean Baptiste Lamy. In Ohio, he was John Baptist Lamy. <laughs> <laughs> and in Santa Fe, he was Juan Bautista Lamy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is diverse tongues, isn't it? Yes. What about the literature in, in the Philippines? Has uh, You say there's this poet. Yes, um, there's... Uh, are there any novelists? Uh, yes, I can't think of them uh, for the moment, which is awful of me. But uh, one thing I was going to say is that, uh, of course... Uh, the Spaniards brought the Roman Church, uh, which is a form of uh, language in itself. And uh, this is the one thing that the Spaniards uh, gave the Philippines, uh, which uh, definitely persists to this day. And of course, it's uh, strongly uh, and largely uh, Roman Catholic. What about the Muslims? Aren't there some? Yes, but those are out in the island of Sulu, oh. and uh, they have always been secessionists. And of course, they're having problems there now because of the uh, Sultan of Sulu. Oh. You have a cardinal in Manila, don't you? Yes, 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 yes there is a cardinal. Yeah. A cardinal of Manila? Yes. Didn't yes. Realize yeah. that, I first came upon the, the Spanish relation to Manila in, in when I was working on a Great River book and also on a book about the conquistadores. And when in the 17th century they spoke quite casually of the Manila Galleon. It was a, it was a regular sailing, scheduled sailing, between, between uh, Mazatlan in Mexico on the west coast and Manila. Oh. And much of the importation of rich goods came from from the Philippines to the mainland of Mexico and then up to New Mexico. Well, there is but the fabulous uh, Black Nazarene which was carved in Mexico mm. and probably uh, came uh, from uh, that, uh, came on that um, particular on that galleon. Yeah, probably, yes. <laughs> yes. But how did it get round from Mazatlan? It came overland from Mazatlan to Mexico City. Oh, I see. You see, it was trans-shipped. Trans because it was before the Panama Canal. Oh, yeah, heavens, yes. <laughs> yeah, centuries. But it was, it was trans-shipped by land from the port to, to the capital. And from there, of course, the, the, the carters carried it to New Mexico, that enormous, enormous overland trip that took together. That was the trip of Cabeza de Vaca, too, wasn't oh, no, it? No, no, he came from the other end. From, he came from uh, the Atlantic shore, from the Gulf of Mexico, oh. the other side. Because that's one of the most extraordinary books. One of the amazing stories. Yes, his own account of that is amazing. That's one of my books. He was the first, really, European to penetrate what is the Southwest. And he wrote in Spanish? He wrote in Spanish. Yeah, because yes. it's it's very beautifully translated, isn't it? In, uh, yes, by two or three people. Yes. yes. But it's it's a wonderful document. By the poet who lived in Santa Fe. Yes, yes. And then a, a wonderful biography by Boris Bishop was written about him. Very, very interesting man. And, and, but he, I suppose, never never knew anything except Spanish. That was a never. single culture. Absolutely. Okay. When did English begin then? Not not until the conquest in in forty eight. English uh, it became general only at forty in forty six. In forty six, the ruling language became yeah. English in forty six. It was there through the traders, the Santa Fe traders and the trappers as well, who came from the east, the mountain men, but that was sporadic, of course, and localized and so on. What about the Indian languages? The Indian languages, of course, they they are in in New Mexico. They're proper to the pueblos and to the Apaches and the Navajo, and they are there are several subdivisions of language among the Pueblo, but they never inter interlocked or interfiltrated or inter inter um, seeded. Is as, there any Navajo poetry? 
Uh, there, are, there are ceremonial songs which are very beautiful and very moving in, in Navajo, yes. And they've been wonderfully translated by various people. But they're always liturgical, in a sense. They have to do with great ceremonies. Now, Widobino's translation of, of um, not, not so. Cabeza de Vaca... No, he didn't do Cabeza, excuse oh, me. I thought he did. No. I thought it was Widobino's. No, Hanael Long did a beautiful little short ah. fictional account mm-hmm. of Cabeza de Vaca. I thought uh, Widobino, because he did a lot of translations, yes. didn't he? He translated the Tao... And he was one of the glories of uh, Santa Fe. Well, he was the he, he was the dean of the literary colony for many many years. Yes, yeah. and he was a man of several. Um, well, w- what would you conclude then, as we have very little time? Divers tongues do make one people. You would agree? Yes, I think they uh, they certainly, certainly uh, make uh, many people and one people at the same time. And now then, of course, we see the curious phenomenon of the separatist happening in which the people of the original divers' tongues want to identify themselves as against being one people and into being a cells of one people. Yes, going back. Going back. Yes. And it's, I think it's a great local gain and uh, interest, but a great threat to a general culture. Yes, I agree there. Well, the loss and gain is a wave movement, It's a wave it? movement. It's a very well movement. said. It changes always. Thank you very much indeed, Dr. Horgan. Dr. Paul Horgan's new book, Lamy of Santa Fe, is about Bishop Lamy. And thank you very much indeed, Robin Prising. His book is called Manila Goodbye, and it's published by Horton Mifflin, and Dr. Paul Horgan's book is published by Farrah Strauss. Thank you both very much for being on Pen Portraits on WNYC. Thank you, Mrs. Fremantle. Thank you, Mrs. Fremantle.